I was doing it. I was out there. I was buying self-storage facilities. We were trying to raise money for them. We were doing the deals. We had a small business. And then I just openly shared everything. A lot of entrepreneurs are also very secretive. They're very keep to themselves. They don't want people to know what they're doing. Um, I looked at it the opposite way. I was like, I'm going to share every single thing I know about business and entrepreneurship. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fuel Presents. In this episode, I talked to Nick Huber. Nick started a business when he was still in college, student storage. He started off slow, but is now rapidly expanding his business, which is already worth eight figures. In this episode, you'll learn how Nick built his eight-figure business and how he just sold over 300K in a digital masterclass on real estate. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, man. Hey, Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me, Yannick. I'm just a guy, man. I started a small business when I was in college and have uh, slowly taken opportunities as they came at me. Cool. Because I read on Twitter that you, uh, you had like a light bulb moment and then you started, you know, amassing wealth. What led up to that moment? Why did you decide, you know, to, to change your life? Yeah, I would say it was a slow burn of a light bulb moment. I mean, it was in college when we got excited about picking up and delivering student storage and we filled our, our cars with boxes and hauled them up into our rooms and made about three grand in a week. And most people wouldn't really get excited about that because we worked our butts off and we missed a couple of parties and you know everybody else was having a good time. Uh, but my partner and I got excited and we started the business and it was sweaty and slow growing. First couple of years, it, uh, you know, we just went to a couple more schools to do student storage every year. But you fast forward 10 years and it's kind of amazing what, you know, starting the snowball rolling down the hill that early does. So I think it's been more of a slow burn. Cool. And why, why did you decide to go into student storage? I was an opportunist. I didn't even consider myself an entrepreneur. I just was looking for a way to make money. Then we kind of looked at it as an opportunity to, hey, maybe we can use this as a way to not go get normal jobs because normal jobs would not be that fun. <laughs> because it was, I don't live in the States, so I live in the Netherlands. We don't have a thing here that's called like student storage. So for people that don't know, what is it? We did pickup and delivery. Our business has evolved. So at the very beginning, we when the students would go home from university in the summer, we would pick up their stuff before they left, store it in a warehouse, and then take it back to them when they got back. That was a service business. We would drive trucks around. We had a lot of employees. And then in 2017, we built a self-storage facility, a building that has garage doors that people can store their extra stuff. And if you know anything about Americans, they have a lot of stuff. They like to buy stuff. Yeah, then we you know, built that first building. It went well. I got some capital partners behind us. And then things have really started to accelerate over the last couple of years as we get more serious about real estate. But yeah, it's slow because 2011, we launched. 2013, we were making maybe 100 grand a year. 2015 is when we were making decent money, my partner and I. And when I say decent money, I mean a half million US dollars a year and uh, use that money to put as a down payment towards a real estate development project in 2017. And that's when things really changed for us. Nice. And so do I look at this right that people, they cancel their apartment, then things go into storage, they save money on rent and then come back and rent a different place? Or what's what's the reasoning behind? Yeah. When they go home for the summer, they uh, kind of leave the dorms. They live in dorms at college. So when they are in the dorms, they, they can't stay there all summer. So they have to do something with their stuff. And a lot of times they live out of state, need, need somewhere to put their things. Cool. And why did you know this was a big thing? I didn't think it was. a. I mean, looking back, it wasn't a big thing. We worked our butts off. And honestly, the amount of effort and the amount of risk and the amount of stress around doing the logistics of that service business you know, was pretty tough. But I just think it gave us an opportunity. It taught us that, hey, there's more to life than 
you know, trying to find the best job you can and going to work for somebody else, you can do the, do life a little bit differently and create opportunities for yourself. And then we were all about just trying to find the next opportunity, the next bigger and better opportunity from there the entire time, really. Hmm. And how did you decide on what pricing to go for? I think, uh, you know, that's a tough part because we looked at a competitors, figured out what we thought we could charge. And then we ran the numbers backwards on how much money we thought we could make. I mean, honestly, we made a lot of mistakes in the early days, but yeah, we operated at about a 20% margin, meaning if a million dollars in revenue would generate about $200,000 for my partner and I to pay ourselves. Okay. And how does the cut, you have to pick up the stuff, then you have to, you know, either you have employees, you need the truck, then you need the space. Yeah, it was incredibly logistically challenging, right? This was back when Uber was launching and people expected service to be, you know, right when they wanted it, how they wanted it. So we had to have box trucks rented and employees prepared and dollies and boxes and supplies at people's doors at the time they were expecting us. And if we weren't there in time, they, they could miss a flight because they were heading out of town, whatever it might be. So it was a lot of logistics. It taught us a lot about delegation, managing, dealing with employees. We'd have you know upwards of 150 part-time employees that we would hire every single year, year in and year out. So uh, yeah, it taught us a lot about business. Cool. And so I saw your calculation on Twitter. If you can keep your cost 1% below your revenue gain, I guess, in the end, that's going to land you a lot of money. Can you run us through that, how that works? Well, yeah. So if you raise your prices 5%, your costs don't change. So your margin, if your margin was 20%, your margin just expanded by 20% with a 5% increase because all that goes straight to profit. So a lot of business owners that charge too little, you know, don't understand that even a one, two, 5% price increase can really make a big difference for the amount of money that you take home at the end of the day, because it all goes straight to the bottom line if it's on the top. Yeah. And I guess in real estate, well, you actually, well, you do real estate and services. So I guess it's like a combined thing, but definitely in real estate, you know, you put in a down payment, you get a mortgage that's usually fixed for, I don't know, 10, 15, whatever years. So you know what your expenses are going to be. And if you can then, you know, that's usually fixed. And then if you can increase your revenue by 1% every year, that's going to really tick, tick. Yeah, exactly. So real estate is a little bit different than the service business. So we actually sold our company in January and uh, focus full-time now on real estate. We do real estate private equity, but we manage the asset itself as well. But yeah, if you can, you know, if expenses make up 30% of total costs in a self-storage facility, you know, you have a lot of debt service and other things below the line. But as far as actual expenses that you use to run the company, if it's 30 to 50% and, um, you know, your revenue grows 5% a year and your expenses also grow 5% a year, your margins, your profit is going to grow 10% a year because the larger number is growing at the same rate as the smaller number. So it's adding more money to the bottom line. And so if somebody would want to start in real estate, what would you say? You know, they, they need a little bit of cash at least to make the down payment, I guess. How would you start with that? Yeah, I would say... Real estate is small business. People think it's passive. People think real estate is just something that you can put money into and you know walk away or just collect rent every single month. The best real estate operators that I know have a competitive advantage and treat real estate like small business. They do the ins and outs of the marketing, the leasing, the operations well. So I recommend starting a small business first understanding business, understanding how it works and using that small business to also generate cash for yourself. Because at least commercial real estate, it's really hard to get started without $100,000 or 
and plus the ability to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars from outside investors. So it can get, you know, expensive, but that's commercial real estate, you know, residential. I'm not as big in residential. I think there's a lot of competition and the yields are kind of compressed, but also there's a lot more of it. So it's easier to find deals. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. You can do that with 20 grand or so, I would think. Yeah. And how do you find like commercial products? Commercial real estate is basically the offices, the self-storage facilities, the hospitals, everywhere you go that's not a home that someone doesn't live. That's what is considered commercial real estate. Yeah, there's tons of different asset classes. There's, you know, everything from RV parks on up to, you know, nursing homes and shopping centers and things like that. So it's pretty wide. You can choose any asset class that you might want to go after. Yeah. So asset class is like, uh, what kind of risk, you know, when you go to RV homes, the risk of you know, people defaulting on a payment is probably higher than when you go to nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all depends. Exactly right. There's different trends and different, you know, hotels, exactly like hotels during the recent pandemic were really struggling, but self-storage facilities and industrial space, you know, those were not impacted as much, right? So it all depends on the different events that might impact all the different asset classes, retail, industrials, and so on. How do you decide in what kind of class you want to invest? It all depends on what kind of competitive advantage you have. I mean, it's all about focusing and getting good at one thing, right? If you're going to try to be good at 10 different asset classes, it's not as easy. But if you focus on, for me, I focus on self-storage. I don't do any other type of real estate investing because this is what I'm good at. This is what I know. And um, a lot of people are also kind of passive investors that, you know, maybe I do real estate, but I'm going to invest with my friend who does industrial real estate and so on. Yeah. But then you buy like the self-storage unit as in the building, but you also do like the sales. Yeah, that's the difference. Commercial real estate, there's operations and you can hire a third party manager to manage your asset for you, or you can do it yourself. We do it ourselves. We're a fully integrated company where we answer the phones for customers all the way up to raise the capital to close the deal and own the deal. So yeah, the, you know, the operations and having the web presence and doing the marketing and knowing, you know, how to price your units and how to get tenants, all that stuff is really important when it comes to the type of real estate that I do, which you wouldn't think. A lot of people think real estate is somebody who just sits around and gets checks sent to their mailbox, but it's a small business. Yeah. Because you could also be the guy that like buys the building and then rents out the building, the self-storage building, but that's not what you're doing. Why did you make that decision? You know, there's different people who do different, who do it different ways. And in self-storage, it's pretty rare for the owner to rent the building out to somebody. The owner may hire a management company that runs the business for them, but it's still their business. But then again, other asset classes, they do kind of lease the entire building and let somebody else run the business. Like if you're a retail landlord, you hire a grocer or a you know shopping store to come in and they run their business inside your property, just lease it f- from you. So there's different ways to do it. Hmm. And what would you say are your biggest uh, competitive advantages? Well, for us in self-storage, we manage our, you know, our property remotely. So we don't have a f- staff on site and we do a really good job sourcing deals and finding property where we can, you know, there's some room to increase rents. The market rent is higher than what maybe the owner's charging and um, we can see decent returns. Hmm. And how does it go? When, because when you buy a property and they already have tenants, you can't just raise prices or can you? It depends if there's, you know, a shortage of storage in the market or if other competitors are maybe charging more than what you're charging, then yeah, sometimes we do raise rents right off the bat. Yeah. But it all depends on what we think we can do in that given market. 
Okay, that's interesting. Because I would say that, but that's probably the contract that says, you know, we can raise prices at any time, but the people are also free to leave at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's just a free market. Okay. And so you manage the entire thing from marketing, sales, you buy the asset. What's going to be your next step? Are you just going to expand throughout the entire country or what are your plans? Yeah. So we've purchased 20 self-storage facilities and 13 of them we purchased in the last six months. So we're growing really fast right now. We are over a half million square feet of storage that we manage. And with commercial real estate, there's kind of some economies of scale that when you have a larger portfolio, some new buyers, some new potential owners of the portfolio come into the picture. So our goal is to scale up and buy another you know, 20 to 30 million and then sell it all. Do you have outside investors or is it just you and your partner? Or? Yeah, we raise money. A lot of it we've raised from folks we met on Twitter. But yeah, we, we raise outside investors capital from high net worth individuals and family offices and institutions that are you know looking for self-storage exposure. Yeah, that's what we do. That's the real estate private equity side of it. So we, we have a CFO and um, you know, when we have a new deal, a new self-storage facility, we send it out to folks and we say, okay, you know, who might want to invest in this deal? These are the return metrics. This is what we think we can do with it. Here's our plans. And we raise the money that way. Cool. Wow. And so when's the, the, the plan to really like exit? When, when are you? Well, we're getting close. I mean, we, our portfolio is probably worth 40 million right now, but we think around 75 million is the sweet spot. So we want to buy some more storage, continue to operate, get you know, all of our facilities that we own under management, you know, running the right way and then really go from there and, and uh, go to market and see what might happen. Okay. And 75 million, because that's where strategic buyers like the countrywide competitors start seeing you as maybe a threat and, and, you know. Yeah. There's just different pools of capital, right? So the big players, the private equity companies, the people who have more capital, they don't always have time or energy to go buy a one-off self-storage facility for 1 million, 2 million, 3 million. They have a big team and they're looking to deploy 20 million or 30 million. And so they'd prefer guys like us to go around and do the work, get the facilities all purchased, get them branded, get the rents up, get them all organized. And then they make the acquisition then and hold it for a long time. Cool. And let's say we go back 10 years. Would you do the same thing? What would you do different? I think I would do it all the same, but it might just be a little faster. We made a lot of mistakes. We learned a ton. I mean, when we started the company, we were 22 years old. So didn't know a whole lot about business, didn't know a whole lot about management, didn't know a whole lot about delegation. And we learned those things by you know, making mistakes and operating that company for seven, eight, nine years. So I definitely wouldn't change anything knowing what I know now because I feel really blessed to have the opportunities that I have. But I think if I went back knowing what I know now, we would do it all a little bit faster, right? We would uh, get more serious about operating and growing the, the service business. We would have built our first self-storage facility earlier and we would have uh, you know, just had the confidence to go. I think it's all about confidence a little bit. And so run us through some of the mistakes you made and how you, so you mentioned, you know, you'd go all in a bit quicker. I think early on, we didn't really take ownership of our hiring and training. So our employees were messing up a lot of things. And we were hiring employees, wanting them to do 20 or 30 things well. Like we were hiring a customer service rep that was also going to drive a truck, that was also going to make our invoices, that was also going to move the boxes. And they were out there doing all these things. And it was really hard to train employees. It was really hard for them to provide a consistent you know, service to our customers. When we got good and when we, and also my partner and I, we would sit around and complain. We'd say, we can't find anybody good. Our employees are making all these mistakes. It's crazy. Like nobody wants to work. 
when we finally looked at it and said, okay, look, it's our fault as a business owner. Like we are not setting these people up to succeed. We need to build a business that normal people can come in and learn it quickly and they can thrive and they can do well. That's when we got serious about building systems. We simplified their job a little bit. So maybe they weren't also answering customer service calls and they weren't also, you know, creating our invoice. Instead, they were just taking a picture of the order and they could focus on what they were supposed to be doing. That's when things really grew. And that's when we started doing really well. Cool. And so a couple of years back, you start your Twitter account. Yeah. Run us through that. Why did you go on Twitter? How did it go? Yeah. So I first started a podcast and that was in December of 2018. It's called the Sweaty Startup Podcast. And it was just about small business and entrepreneurship because my whole philosophy on entrepreneurship is, hey, Silicon Valley, raising money, venture capital, that's not the only way to start a business. The people that I know, some of them that are doing well, they're wealthy. And honestly, they're not even that smart. Like me, for example, they started just service companies. They started small businesses. They were just doing normal things. They were just trying to do them pretty well. And um, they made a lot of money and they did pretty well. So, you know, I was trying to get that message out to, because I saw in college, a lot of people who were focused on entrepreneurship all over the country, people, you know, friends of mine were going to try to start businesses. And it's just really, really, really hard when you have a new idea and you're trying to get momentum early on, especially when you don't have money, wealth, whatever it might be. So I started a podcast in December, 2018. And then I got on a Reddit entrepreneur subreddit trying to promote that podcast and i did that for about a year and um i learned how to write copywriting i learned how to write copy and i learned how to kind of you know clarify my thoughts and ideas and i was making a lot of podcast episodes and so on and um a guy reached out to me a friend of mine named moses kagan who's on twitter and he said nick you know you should get on twitter it's you know we're, we're doing we're meeting a lot of other real estate people we're raising money for our deals we're getting smarter we're getting better like you should come on and do it he heard my podcast and he came on my podcast and at the end of the conversation he said nick you should get on twitter i didn't you know didn't even know you were in real estate it would really help you yeah. so in april of 2020 right after covid hit really i got serious about twitter and the rest is history it's just changed my world altogether yeah yeah because i think one of the like one of your first threads that did really, really well was about, you know, what kind of job, or at least you gave advice to people that were in the job market, I guess. Run us through that. I just started tweeting a lot about, you know, hey, entrepreneurship isn't what you necessarily read in the news. Hey, you know, you don't have to be a genius to start a business. Hey, you don't need a brand new idea to start a company. There's a lot of misconceptions around entrepreneurship and wealth on the internet. And some of those threads really took off a couple of them about Shark Tank and TechCrunch is not the only way. And, and then the big one about, you know, some of the bad advice that I've gotten in my life about, you know, what's important and following your passion and some other things that I just think are really, really bad pieces of advice that people get all the time that I just disagree with wholeheartedly. And some of those threads took off and, and one in particular on, I think it was January 2nd, got a uh, seven and a half million impressions, 50,000 likes you know, 7,000 retweets. And uh, that one got me 30,000 followers and took me over almost over 100,000 followers and changed everything. Wow. And you mentioned that you also raise money and do deals via Twitter. Tell us about that. Well, I don't really necessarily raise money, advertise for my deals on Twitter, but I talk about real estate and I talk about what I do and I talk about my deals. And then I make friends with other people in the business and other people who are potential investors. Some of those people have went on to invest in some of my self-storage deals. So, you know, no, you can't really advertise and sell 
securities on Twitter, but you can meet like-minded people. So I use Twitter to meet like-minded people who are investors, who are interested in real estate. And we had conversations and I would help them. They would help me. We would get to know each other and uh, build a relationship that way. So it's exploded my network on Twitter. And uh, I'm really thankful for it. And what would you say are like the key drivers behind your, your growth? Of course, the threads, but why did they take off, do you think? You know, I think everybody talks about, and this is going to be something a lot of people don't want to hear, probably. A lot of people talk about community building and gaining influence and getting people to follow you on Twitter. And I mean, it's not impossible. There's some people who do it, but the majority of influencers on Twitter, especially in the wealth, real estate, self-help realm, 99 out of 100 have actually done it before. They are living it. They're, they have started a company. They have sold a company. They are building a real estate portfolio, whatever it might be. So I was doing it. I was out there. I was buying self-storage facilities. We were trying to raise money for them. We were doing the deals. We had a small business. And then I just openly shared everything. A lot of entrepreneurs are also very secretive. They're very, you know, keep to themselves. They don't want people to know what they're doing. They're afraid that somebody's going to steal their ideas. Um, I looked at it the opposite way. I was like, I'm going to share every single thing I know about business and entrepreneurship. And um, I think instead of people stealing my ideas and it costing me and you know it, it really holding me back, I think I'm going to meet a lot of great people. And I think they're going to want to work with me. And I think it's going to help my network. So I started sharing my profit and loss statements. I started sharing the struggles. I started being honest about how hard being a business owner was. I think that was the key driver of, of my growth. No, I think that's a good point. A lot of people talk about it, but not a lot of people do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The It's hard. I mean, it's uncomfortable. It's scary. It's easy for me to write a tweet that's 280 characters and talk about a deal that I'm doing, but doing a deal and living it and putting your money at risk and going out there and taking a chance when you don't know what's going to happen, it's scary. It's really scary. So when it comes time for people to actually step to the plate and do it, it's tougher. And then a couple of months ago, you decided to create a course. Run us through that. Yeah, I started writing one night. And basically what it was is a, a document that I wish I could have read when I was 24 with some capital about to get into real estate. How deals are put together, how they're structured, how to talk to bankers, how to think about operations, how to just all the things that I had to learn through the hard knocks and just making a bunch of mistakes and sounding like an idiot what I wish I would have had as a resource to kind of accelerate my journey into real estate. And um, it ended up being 100,000 words and 95 pages and a lot of videos and some quizzes. And I called it, you know, Nick Huber's Real Estate Masterclass and advertised it on Twitter and to my email listserv. And this is going to sound silly. I, ch I charged $2,000 for the course and um, I sold 156 of them in the first week. So I made $300,000 <laughs> in a week. That's sick. I saw it. Yeah, because some people sell their course for twenty-five bucks. Other people sell it for two hundred dollars. You sold it for two thousand. Why did you set that price? I just didn't want people to buy the course unless they were serious. And commercial real estate is not for people who are messing around. It's not for people without cash. It's not for people who, oh, I want to maybe do something on the side. It's for people who have maybe a hundred thousand dollars, maybe a access to wealthy people in their lives who could fund a deal and who people who are really serious about doing a deal. So yeah, I, I did a lot of work on it. It's like getting, you know, 200 hours of consulting with me. So I just tried to price it where people would walk away from it being like, damn, that was very worth the money that I paid to, to buy that. <laughs> and when you started, 
writing, did you already think about, hey, I'm going to create a course out of this? You know, online course sales has a dirty reputation. I mean, the Ty Lopez and the Grant Cardones and these people who sell courses, they get a lot of flack and for good reason, because many of it, you know, many of the people who take their courses are just, it's a pipe dream, right? They don't really plan on doing anything. They just buy the courses to hope to make a million dollars really fast. That's not how real estate works. Real estate is not a get rich quick scheme. And I also didn't want it to interfere with the other things that I do on Twitter, like, you know, my podcast and the real estate private equity company. So it was a tough decision to put myself out there to actually sell something to my audience because I've just been giving everything for free for as long as I can remember. Everything I know is on the internet on my blog. I've recorded 230 podcast episodes, never charged for anything in my life. So it was a little bit uncomfortable doing that. Cool. And why did you set the price at 2K and not at five or one or? I don't know. I feel like five grand would have scared a lot of people off. I just trusted my gut. <laughs> I don't know. It's tough. I think 1,000 would have been less valuable than it is. You know, I think a lot of people are going to use that as a tool to generate a lot of wealth. So I don't know. I just trusted my gut. Well, it paid off <laughs> when you sell uh, 165 in the first week. How many people did you email? How many people responded to? Um... I had an email list of about 15,000 people at the time. And then Twitter kind of blew up on Twitter a little bit when I launched it and got a lot of impressions on the original posts. So um, yeah, just it was Twitter and my email list. No paid advertising. Yeah. How did you uh, rank up 15,000 email subs? slowly but surely over the course of two years right with my podcast and uh yeah my podcast was a lot of them my blog was a lot of them and then a lot of reddit threads or twitter threads about entrepreneurship and small business okay and did you ask people on the podcast to subscribe to your newsletter a couple times yeah i would put a a little blurb at the back about my newsletter and how i send it out once a week and and then on twitter i would talk about you know if you like this stuff and you want to get some of it delivered to your inbox and you can you know, sign up here and so on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you know Noah Kagan? Yeah, I do. I do. Because yeah. he talks about his email list a lot, of course, with uh, Sandfox and stuff like that. But he also always says that it's hard to get people from your podcast to a newsletter. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, it is. I mean, not very many conversions. Twitter was much, much more powerful at, at conversions. Yeah. And so you'd say that the majority of your subscribers came from Twitter? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd say 75% of them or more. Okay. And can you give a couple of examples of tweets that did well in driving newsletter subs? Yeah, I would uh, break down a real estate deal. I'd say, hey, look, here's a property. It was listed for this much. This is how much we spent to buy it. This is how we financed it. This is how much revenue and profit it did. If you like this kind of thing, sign up for my newsletter at the end. Some of those threads would get 250,000 impressions and uh, would add 500 people to my newsletter, some of them, when they were doing really well. Cool. And so... You got 117,000 followers right now, something like that, I think. 117, yeah. And so like, I think a couple of threads really blew up and that's where you got a lot of growth from. What other things would you say that did well? Yeah, I'd say some of the keys to my success, and I'm not perfect at this because I'm a human being and it's easy to just tweet, but um, everything I write, my goal is to make a smart person think hard about something. I don't want to write something that people will scroll by and go, and then keep scrolling or just scroll right past. I want them to look at it and say, oh, that's a little bit of a different way of thinking about something. I haven't thought about it that way before. That's my goal on Twitter. Too many people tweet way too much, I think. They're tweeting all day. A couple tweets a day 
or even a couple tweets a week. If you look at like Julian Shapiro, how he does Twitter, Julian, he's very disciplined and very regimented and it's not overloading anybody. He's a follow that, hey, I'm going to deliver on brand content exactly how you thought it was going to be when you signed up to follow me. I do a little bit more personal stuff because I want people to get to know me. But um, yeah, it's no politics ever. That's a rule of mine. Stay on brand, stay on topic. Don't tweet everything and just add a ton of value to other people. Share openly about what you're doing. But part of that is you have to be doing something interesting, right? So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. And well, you have your DMs open. I guess you also receive other DMs. What are like the DMs that really stood out or DMs you ignore? I get a lot of dumb DMs. Hey, can you help me? Hey, can you have, invest in my project? Hey, can you? Hey, Nick, I have an issue with finding a romantic partner and sustaining myself. Is there anything you know that can help me develop more? Thanks. <laughs> That's a DM I got today. About, I mean, I get 40 direct messages a day. It's a lot. So I don't, 99% of them I don't respond to, right? Because I just, I can't. So, and it's amazing how many people will just send a, a wall of text you know, and expect you to spend six minutes reading it. But a lot of people do show up in the DMs that want to collaborate, help me in a way or, or pay me to help them. A lot of opportunity happens there too. Yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. You get a lot of DMs, but a lot of crap as well. And, and a lot of people don't know how to send a proper DM, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, the proper DM gets the... I mean, look, when you're looking at the DMs in your inbox, you get about 35 characters that you get to read before you click on it. That's what you need to catch whoever you're trying to send a DM with right there. It's tough. It's tough. But getting an in in the DM is almost always about, I think people network the wrong way. People network with their handout. Hey, help me, help me, help me, Nick. How can you help me? Hey, me, me, me. I need help. Me, 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 Nick, help me, me. The people who really win with networking, they walk around saying, okay, I'm going to walk into a room how can I add as much value to as many people as absolutely possible? How can I help you? How can I help you, Yannick? How can I help you, Nick? Like, here's a thing that I can do to help you right now. Because it's all about status, right? You work your way up the status line. If you're at the bottom, it's really hard to get up and people don't have time. I mean, I'm trying to do what I can do to put out as much content as I can and help as many people that way. Unfortunately, I just don't have the brain power or the time to sit in my DMs and direct message people individually. So um, the way to get me to help you in the DMs is to find a way to help me. You know, people are too selfish when they're networking. And I know it sounds, it makes me sound selfish when I'm saying like, help me in the DMs, but there's mutually beneficial ways to help each other. Like if I can benefit and you can benefit, that's a synergy and that's a, a real way to kind of supercharge networking. Exactly. Well, and I guess people just need to realize that when you get 40 DMs a day, you just, you, one, you can't respond to them all. Two, if you keep getting messages like, help me, help me, help me, you know, you might do that once or twice. You might say, okay, I'll, I'll dig into this one. I'll, I'll do it. But you can't keep doing that. So mm -hmm. exactly right. Exactly. Cool. What do people need to do for you to retweet them? I don't do that for people in there uh, who DM me asking for retweets. <laughs> I mean, more in general, like what kind of tweets would you retweet? So I do quote retweets. I don't retweet. Very rarely do I retweet because if I'm just retweeting, I'm not adding anything. <laughs> it's already out there. I'm just spreading it. I prefer to only tweet when I can quote tweet and add something interesting or a different way of thinking about something. So I will quote tweet something where somebody does something thoughtful and I feel pretty strongly about 
in agreement with them or in a disagreement with them, that's when I will quote tweet them. Again, my goal is not to clutter up people's threads. My goal is to add value. And if I can't add value myself, then I'm not going to retweet somebody unless it's a friend of mine and they're promoting something and I'll try to help them out because they help me out or something like that. Let's say we remove your Twitter account. You don't have a podcast. You do still have your business. What would you do to you know grow your account? I would do the same thing. I would get on and start sharing in very openly about what I'm doing. I would try to do interesting things and I would share it. And I would also work really hard to add value to some people with around five to 10,000 followers. I was really lucky that when I joined Twitter, Moses Kagan, the guy that got me to join Twitter, he had about 6,000 followers at the time. And he, when I got on Twitter, I, I wrote a really interesting thread and he said, hey, this guy, Nick, is doing some cool things. You should follow him. And that got me to 750 followers right away. And that gave me the momentum to continue to grow. So if I were starting out and I was doing some interesting things, I would talk about my interesting things and then I would find a way to help some people in the DMs who have five to 10,000 followers and try to get them to quote tweet me. Nick, this was a lot of fun. Where can people find you? Yeah, I think Twitter at Sweaty Startup. They can email me sweatystartup at gmail.com. They can check out my Sweaty Startup website, sweatystartup.com. The podcast is called The Sweaty Startup. That's where they can find me. Thanks, Nick from The Sweaty Startup. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on, Yannick. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. Thank you.